0: You are listening to She the Change, a podcast that inspires future change makers to start taking action because everyone has the power to change the world. My name is Itasha Dante, and I'm a change maker best known for being the CEO and founder of a charity called Hope and Joy for Children. And I'm sitting down with female leaders who are advocating, empowering and initiating change on a local and global scale. Here we talk about how they got started, their inspiration, and most importantly, how others can make an impact. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Carolina Dubiel. Carolina is the CEO of a global nonprofit, a Civil Air Patrol cadet in the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary, and holder of a student pilot certificate. In an effort to introduce more young girls into traditionally male-dominated STEM fields, she founded and personally manages the Girls in Aerospace Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on bringing aerospace opportunities to women worldwide, impacting over 15,000 young women to date with events, webinars, and programs. Past webinars at Girls in Aerospace include a meet and greet with NASA astronaut Bonnie J. Dunbar, and a space law webinar with communicator Lauren Killam. Carolina has worked towards constructing a database of over 120 aerospace resources for all ages, including online courses, simulators, activities, camps, and classes. As an award-winning amateur web developer, she specializes in simple, usable applications centered around daily tasks. In her free time, She publishes space articles and is working on her first App Store-worthy iOS app. During our conversation, Carolina discussed how she became a Civil Air Patrol cadet and certified student pilot, her journey of starting Girls in Aerospace, how she was able to find her voice to speak up about topics she is passionate about, and her experience navigating through male-dominated fields like cybersecurity and aerospace. It was a pleasure speaking with Carolina and learning about her experiences. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, Carolina. It's so nice to meet you. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Can you give the audience a little background about yourself first?
1: Yeah, of course. So I'm from Seattle, Washington. I'm 16 years old. I'm currently in a regular public high school, uh, but I love aviation and I love aerospace. So a few years back, or actually almost exactly a year ago, I founded my own nonprofit focused on aerospace education and aviation. Uh, initially, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to be headed, but today it's kind of evolved into something that adv- advocates for equity and opportunities in aerospace for people of all ages. Uh, so that's mostly what I do. On the side, I, al- I also work on my student pilots license since. Uh, I'm looking forward to becoming a private pilot someday. And I also play volleyball and I love running track.
0: That's incredible. So I know that you moved from Poland. How has growing up in Poland shaped who you are today? And what was the move like from moving from Poland to Seattle?
1: So actually, I was born in Seattle, but I used to live in Singapore. My parents are both from Poland, so they did immigrate here. Uh, I was born right after they moved here. So most of them, most of their English vocabulary was not super advanced. So it was kind of weird being the first person in my family to be born in the U.S. to speak English as my first language. Uh, I had a hard time kind of knowing English vocabulary uh, at first, which was a very young, you know, kindergarten, first grade, because my parents only spoke Polish at home. And to this day, we still only speak Polish. Uh, At the age of five or six, I think we moved to Singapore, which was a whole different culture shock. I mean, obviously, South Asian culture and West Coast American culture is completely different. So uh, seeing all the different cultures that I grew up in, whether it's Polish American and immigrant, kind of culture here in the US and then immigrant in Singapore uh, and part-time resident in Singapore was super weird. uh, And all the languages and cultures and types of people I got exposed to, I think really shaped the way I approached uh, a nonprofit that advocates for equity because I had seen so many Mm -hmm. lifestyles and so many cultures and ways of thinking between people. So I think I I really credit it to a big part of who I am today is that I was constantly moving around between continents.
0: No, I completely agree with you. I think As someone who also has immigrant parents, I think we can relate on that front because we have some sort of worldview. And I think it's interesting how we're both working towards bridging the gender gap in different fields. And, you know, it's really interesting to connect with people like you. Um, So, yeah, I'm really excited for the uh, portion of our conversation where we will talk about girls in aerospace and your organization. I'd love to also hear more about who were your inspirations growing up and how has moving from place to place shaped who your inspirations are?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, I think I didn't really have big celebrity role models growing up, and Mm -hmm. it might have been because... Uh, I wasn't super into American pop culture just because my parents were not American. So we didn't watch the classic American movies or listen to the American radio until I was you know, at least partway through elementary school. And all my moving right. around happened when I was very young. I came back from Singapore when I was six or seven and I've lived here in the same house ever since. So it's it's been a little bit weird to have my life shuffled at such a young age and then at a later time be able to process that and think, okay, what cultural connections do they actually make? So I'd say that my influence. Influences and my role models were mostly my parents uh, because Mm. seeing them being able to adapt to such a different way of life in the United States than they had in Poland uh, was really inspiring to me. They were able to create something and move here and just make another life for themselves. And they've raised me and my sister with a very open mindset that I really appreciate. Uh, Within the aerospace Mm -hmm. world, I. I really admire just your your average women in aerospace, which is a really kind of an ironic phrase because it's not average to have women in aerospace, but I love just mm-hmm. meeting someone on the street and it happens sometimes. It just happens that you know she's a pilot for Alaska Airlines uh, or she is in the Air Force and things like that. Meeting those women, it's only happened a few times, but every once in a while I come across them and it's just incredibly inspiring to mm-hmm. see people who are just, I can mistake them for anyone, and they happen to be incredible women in aerospace. I take that as a big step in progress because it shows me that there isn't one image for what a woman in aerospace looks like. There isn't one box that they have to fit in, one definition, mm. uh, and it's it's really nice to see that it's finally starting to become normal, that women are pilots and engineers and people in the Air Force. Yeah, oftentimes
0: when certain groups of people aren't portrayed in the media, it's hard to relate And I think it's so special when you meet like-minded people, people who relate to you, and you can relate to them to jump off of your passions and feel like you belong. I think that's really key. Um, And I think it's so amazing that you have met people like that. So how did you get into aerospace in the first place? Was it your parents who influenced you or... Was it something
1: else? It was completely by accident. Uh, If you had told me like two years, three years ago that I would be into aerospace, that I would have my student pilot's license before I had my driver's permit, I would call you Mm. absolutely insane. I had no idea. It actually happened by accident. Uh, My mom was late picking up my sister from school one day, and she bumped into one of her old time friends who told her that her son was joining this organization. Called the Civil Air Patrol, and they mm-hmm. have a cadet program that he's going to be part in. It's the Air Force Auxiliary. He'll be, you know, doing some sort of pilot training. She made it sound like this really cool aerospace cyber program for kids. So my mom was like, "Oh, they're having an open house. Why don't you go as well?" Uh, so I mm-hmm. went, and I was absolutely terrified. I, when I say <laughs> I was scared, I mean I was so intimidated. There's a bunch of kids my age wearing Air Force uniforms in a National Guard armory and I mean I I was super scared I had never done anything to do with the military aerospace before but I loved mm-hmm. it and I loved the the fact that I was actually getting to have an orientation ride in an aircraft and the fact that I was doing military drill and being with people who had served in the military and mm-hmm. learning from them and learning character development and leadership and all of that. So Initially, that's how I got my start in aerospace, was joining the cadet program in the Civil Air Patrol, which I'm still in going on two and a half years. It's been really amazing. Uh, I've gotten to fly an actual aircraft over Seattle. Which was awesome. Uh, but again, I did not see this coming at all. I've always liked space and planes as a kid. Mm-hmm. I loved, I, I traveled a lot, so I loved flying in planes. It was like my favorite thing going to the airport. But I never saw myself flying a plane or being in the Air Force or anything like that.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, that first day when you went to the cadet program, did you see anyone who looked like you, or was it mainly? Uh, male-dominated?
1: It was hugely male-dominated. I think when I joined my mm-hmm. squadron, there were maybe two other females in a 60, 70-person squadron. That was including all the senior members, all the adult members. Uh, mm-hmm. So seeing something like that was not entirely encouraging. It was encouraging in a unique way where I was like, oh, now I have to succeed. Now I have to show them that this is uh, something that I can do. I need to be a role model for any future girl who might walk into this building. I need to be the one that she sees. She needs to see someone of high ranking and a powerful position in the squadron. Uh, So I did want to inspire other girls in the program, definitely. But yeah, it definitely wasn't super great at first to see these are literally all men. There is there are no females in the nearest one mile of me right now.
0: Yeah, I can imagine like not seeing anyone who looks like you and not having any exposure to um, being a part of this cadet program in the past. Probably was very intimidating. And yeah, that's crazy that you've been a part of this cadet program for over two years now. And I'm so happy that you're um, sticking with it.
1: Definitely, especially in in military related things, uh, the customs for females and males are different. The regulations are different. Mm -hmm. So I have to do my hair differently than males. Obviously, I wear my uniform differently. I have an entire different uniform for uh, one of the two uniforms that we wear. It's just completely different for females. So not having Mm -hmm. someone to kind of explain the regulations to me and say, oh, okay, you need to have this one and a half inches from the border of your collar or something like that. uh, Those measurements and those regulations are different. So all Mm -hmm. the males could comply by this one regulation. They could uh, inspect their own uniforms. They knew the regulations for themselves. And not a lot of people knew the female regulations. And they weren't able to provide me that guidance. So obviously, this is not the Air Force. This is just the cadet program. Um, But it was still kind of like, I want to comply by these guidelines. I'm expected to comply by these guidelines. And there's no one to help me. So it did Mm -hmm. kind of start an initiative as more females joined our squadron to have everyone know the regulations for... um, all all people. So I know the male regs, males know the female regs, and that kind of mm. made a culture of everyone can help everyone. It's not just I can only help females because I don't know any of the male regs. Yeah,
0: I think it's really important that that shift take place because, you know, in a place where it is predominantly male, it's hard to relate to other people, and I think as something as small as regulations, like just coming down to that, having other people who know those regulations and can help you, um, I think is really important. And I'm glad that those steps are being taken to uh, change that dynamic. What does a day in the life as a student pilot and a cadet in the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary look like?
1: Uh, honestly, I live a pretty pretty average life. Uh, it's it's not that I wake up, you know, and fly my fighter plane around. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people, when I say that I'm a cadet in the Air Force Auxiliary, kind of imagine me as this military persona and it's not like that at all i don't want to be a spokesperson for a civil air patrol here but i only go to meetings once a week at the actual squadron base physically and then i Mm -hmm. go to online meetings two times a week sometimes sometimes three times a week if Mm -hmm. we're doing something crazy planning some sort of events uh but my day in life i wake up probably five minutes before my virtual school starts because not a very long walk from my bed to my desk. Uh, I'm I taking... I very much relate. <laughs> definitely. I love online school. That's I, I actually really do like it. I'm one of the people who mm-hmm. it really works for. But I wake up right before school. I'm not a productive morning person. Um, definitely would like to be, but not yet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm taking quite a few AP classes this year, quite a few honors classes. So it's during school, I'm, I'm pretty focused. I always take notes. I'm a super visual person. So my school ends in the afternoon and I go to either sports practice. I play volleyball and I run track. I do pole vault and track. So usually I'll I'll have sports practice right after school. And then sometimes it's straight from sports practice to a civil air patrol meeting. I I change Mm. in the school bathrooms and then I just um, run to my civil air patrol meeting. So it is pretty busy. Uh, especially mm-hmm. with Girls in Aerospace, I mean, that takes so much time. I'm sure you know from leading a team yeah. initiative that it is, people don't see how much, how much goes on behind the scenes, especially in terms of PR and social media and programs and all that. So it is kind of, I constantly have something to do. I mean, I'm on spring break right now and I'm still working on Girls in Aerospace posts and our development plans. So day in right. the life definitely varies, but always busy, always something to do.
0: I definitely can relate to you. I myself am not a morning person as well. Um, you can find me maybe waking up two minutes before my classes, just hopping on the Zoom. And, you know, I also play volleyball, which is very cool. So, yeah, we're a lot more similar than. Yeah, we have a lot um, in common. <laughs> we but yeah, there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. So how did you find your voice to share your story and discuss these issues regarding the gender gap in the aerospace field within the status quo?
1: It kind of happened randomly. Uh, I, mm. I founded the organization right as quarantine started. I think it was like one or two days after we initially got that lockdown notice that I had had this idea in my mind for a long time. And I was hugely overworking myself. I was a freshman in high school at the time. I was taking all yeah. honors classes, tons of extracurriculars, extra math, extra all of that. Uh, And I was stressed out. I didn't have any time. And I would have all these ideas and I would just write them down for later, maybe for college apps or something like that. And when I finally hit quarantine, I had this moment of like, wow, I actually have nothing to do. I have no homework. I have no sports practices. And I have not had free time in the last six months. I have no idea what to do with myself. So I pulled out that notepad of ideas I had written down. And that was kind of the one that stood out to me the most was a nonprofit focused around aerospace education. So Mm -hmm. I started kind of planning and I was like, do I want to do this alone? Do I want to have a big group of people, small executive board? Uh, How do you even structure an organization? I mean, like they don't teach you this in school, how to start your own nonprofit. So I took a deep dive into um, how other people did it. I looked into other team led nonprofits that I could find online or on Instagram uh, and I kind of started a blueprint and it was a super rough outline. It was kind of a three-year plan of where I wanted to get eventually. So I just started working on it. I started an Instagram page, started a website, and I tried to gain at least a little bit of a community. And it just, mm-hmm. it blew up. It really did. It was um within a few days, I was having people reach out to me, you know, women in aerospace were reaching out to me and saying, this is like a great, this is a great cause. Can I get involved with it? Can I speak for you? Can I lead a webinar? So it was really awesome getting that support in that community right away. But honestly, it was kind of just a random thought that I had. And I I thought this is something that I really want to do. This is something that's been in my mind. And now I have the time to do it. So
0: that's amazing. Were there any like doubts you had prior to starting the nonprofit? Because like you said, we don't learn this in school, right? So like, were there any obstacles that you were? Anticipating sure.
1: And how like nervous were you to start this organization? I mean, it's been it's been really weird because I think I've been both it's both a blessing and a curse to be a student mm. who's a high achiever in school. Because on one hand, yeah, I have good grades, I take hard classes, I feel like I can succeed in school, but I also have this notion of if I don't try something and I'm not perfect at it right away it's not for me. And that's just something mm. that I've learned through uh, being like school coming easy to me. The way that school teaches really works for my learning style, uh, which is not the case for everyone. But having that be the case for me has made it kind of difficult to explore new interests because I'm, right. I'm not used to failing at something or even not even failing, just not being good at it right away just really bothers me. So I was really scared of not succeeding right away or not getting an audience right away. Uh, and that was going to discourage me. And obviously it did not happen overnight. So I think that that served as a really, really great learning opportunity for me to discover that it's okay if you try something and you're not immediately the best in the world at it. I mean, that is how learning works. And not everything is like school. Not everything is going to be taught in your learning style. So starting Mm -hmm. like an Instagram page, you're not going to have a thousand followers in one day. Uh, And that was an awesome process for me, but it was really, really difficult at the time. In retrospect, it was great. It taught me a ton. But when I was first doing it, I was like, dang, I'm not famous yet. And it's been two hours where this is going nowhere. Right.
0: No, it can be incredibly discouraging when something that you're so passionate about doesn't seem to be resonating with people. But it's really just that Instagram algorithm.
1: (laughs) For sure. It takes a while to reach people, it really does. And it takes a lot of commitment on your end to get it happening.
0: Mm -hmm. So, for being the face, uh, the CEO of Girls in Aerospace, was it difficult to? be put in front of audiences? Because I know that being a CEO of an organization requires you to speak in front of large audiences and um, be a part of that community. So what was that like?
1: Honestly, I, I was expecting to struggle with it. And that was one of the things that I actually didn't didn't really struggle with. And I think the reason mm-hmm. was because I was I was so passionate about it and I had so much to say that I was waiting to be given a stage and I was waiting to be handed the mic and to be able to say something. Mm-hmm. So when I did get those opportunities to appear in panels and webinars and all of that, I was just so eager to tell people, uh, this is what I founded. This is what we do. Uh, come join us. This is, this is awesome. This is what we're mm-hmm. doing. And I honestly wasn't very nervous for it. Uh, in fact, I was super, super excited to finally get to share from a different platform than the one I had built myself. So that All is right. actually one of the things that I didn't struggle with. And I'm very grateful for that because speaking to people and communicating verbally during a time of quarantine is something that's really valuable in sharing your message. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. I find that really interesting because a lot of people do struggle with public speaking and finding their voice because they feel alone. But I think it's really special that you were able to find that so quickly and resonate with so many people as a part of your organization. I know that for me, I quickly realized that my cause was so much bigger than my own uh, insecurities within my public speaking abilities. And what I was fighting for and what I was passionate about was more important than any of the insecurities that I was pointing out. But nobody else would recognize um, in an interview or whatever I was doing. Right. So I definitely can relate to you on that front.
1: Definitely, yeah. I think it was very encouraging to know that I wasn't just speaking for myself. I was speaking for everyone who supported the organization, and all women in aerospace who related to the message that we were trying to send. So, knowing that it's not just me trying to convince people to like me or to convince people to uh, resonate with my personality, it's me trying to convince people to resonate with an idea that I am I have experienced firsthand, and I know other people have as well. So that makes it a lot less scary to know that you're not marketing yourself. You're marketing something much bigger than you and much more. Important than you.
0: Yeah. So we've been touching on Girls in Aerospace, but I'd love to dive deeper into that. Can you tell the audience a little bit about Girls in Aerospace, what
1: you guys do, any initiatives that you have coming up, or past initiatives? For sure, it's kind of hard to sum up a year of progress in just a few, a few minutes mm-hmm. of talking. But uh, we're at completely teen and student run, so all our staff members, all the people we collaborate with, uh, are students. And of course, we have guest speakers and webinar leaders and conference panelists who are not, and they're professionals in the aerospace field. But I pride myself on the fact that this is all completely organized by people like me, and it could be people like you watching who. Uh, are teens and who maybe don't think that they have as much aerospace experience, but we can bring them in and have them host something really awesome. Mm -hmm. So we're working on a few initiatives right now. Uh, Our mission is kind of we have we have multiple pillars that we build off of. And one of them is community. I think that's one of the most important ones is having a group of people who uh, look like you, who are from similar places to you, uh, have uh, experiences that are similar to yours, who kind of are working towards the same goal. That can be super encouraging. So we do that through a Slack community, our Instagram, our social campaigns, our outreach programs that kind of share the stories of people, Uh, community within aerospace and within women specifically in aerospace. Uh, We also have outreach programs, including a magazine that we published last December that was made to kind of share role models and to uh, share the stories of ordinary women in aerospace, which again is kind of ironic because it's right now not ordinary to have a woman in aerospace. And that's, that's kind of Mm -hmm. the whole problem. So we shared stories of the women in aerospace among us. That was kind of the theme for our magazine and recently, we've been doing quite a few webinars and conferences and panels, uh, mostly focused around aerospace education and career education mm-hmm. within aerospace. So we invite uh, space law communicators and astrophysicists. And we even had a panel with an astronaut in a collaboration with another Seattle-based organization. So uh, that's mostly what we do. We have quite a few exciting projects coming, some of which I can't even talk about yet because they haven't been released. But it's, it's really mm-hmm. awesome. We have a lot, lot in store for us in the next few months.
0: That's amazing. So if anyone listening wants to check out Girls in Aerospace, where can they find you?
1: For sure. So our website is girlsinaerospace.org and all our other socials should be on there. Uh, Instagram is at Aerospace, Twitter is at girlsinaero. And again, if you go to our website, you can find everything listed out on there. We're on almost every platform. so.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So to all our listeners, please do check them out. I'd love to hear more about the process of getting started with the organization. What were those first steps? What were the resources you used to get it started?
1: Honestly, I used other people's nonprofits more than anything. I would scroll back mm. to the beginning of their posts and try to see what were the things that they did at the beginning. And most importantly, what's the difference between what they did then and what they do now, uh, trying to get what they learned and apply that to my own organization from the start. Uh, and I definitely did still end up changing completely the blueprint from what I had originally. But uh, I think definitely looking into other people's organizations and seeing the change that they made uh, between their first post or their first podcast or uh, their first website and now is a really valuable Mm -hmm. asset for yourself because you can kind of start pinpointing uh, they changed this or they started posting less often or more often or differently. Uh, That can be really useful to see and to apply to your organization right away so you don't have to learn those lessons over and over. Uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't really do coffee chats with anyone, which is something that I actually regret. I wish I had met with a leader of a nonprofit and asked them for a coffee chat of some, of some sort or uh, some sort of get together so that I can actually verbally talk to them. What was your process of starting the nonprofit? But I never did that, which was uh, unfortunate. Any young change makers out there do take advantage of people who can talk to you verbally and can meet with you, especially during quarantine. It's super, super valuable to actually have face to face communication. But honestly, I completely winged it. Uh, I started on the Instagram pages or only social media and our website. Mm -hmm. And we just worked from there, starting with just Instagram posts, then maybe a webinar here, webinar there, an Instagram takeover, a magazine, and it's just grown.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, I think what's really special, looking at the light of the light at the end of the tunnel regarding quarantine, it's so much easier to connect with people online, meet with people online, and you know it's really opened up this space of virtual um, get-togethers, and I think taking advantage of the opportunity, especially now, is really important. Um, When you find something that you're passionate about, just stick with it, and the resources are there now, and the time is there, and your voice deserves to be heard. Um, That's to anyone listening who's thinking about starting their own passion projects, who's thinking about advocating for whatever causes they believe in. It's so, so important that you trust yourself and your own voice. Um, And it's so incredible to speak with a success story.
1: Definitely. And because of that, I've, I've actually set up a coffee chat system for anyone who would want to uh, talk to me about how I started my nonprofit. I'll give you all the specifics, all the programs, all the details. Uh, so I do, I do have that linked on my LinkedIn site. You can just find that by searching out my name, Carolina Dubiel. You can just book a coffee chat with me and I, I'd be happy to meet with anyone who's looking to start an initiative or a hackathon or a project of any kind.
0: That's amazing. No, I think what's really special now that I think about it is that people are just an email away. And the worst that can truly happen is you don't receive a response back. And I feel like something about that is so intimidating, but in retrospect, just move on to the next person. Like There are so many resources out there, so many people who have gone through what you've gone through, who have um, put out, um, who have started initiatives that may be similar to yours. And they can really be an amazing resource, an amazing mentor uh, to guide you through the process. Because like we said earlier, there is no cost for this. So, I,
1: I love that saying, amazing. you know, you're just an email away. Uh, I used to be really scared to reach out to people because, again, uh, failure is extremely, just, it was terrifying to me yeah. that I could try something and not be good at it. Or I could email someone and they could not respond to me. So uh, I started getting into the habit of just I find an interesting person, I find their contact info, and I just send them an email I explain who I am, uh, how they could help me, what what they could offer me, especially with college professors or people who lead planetariums and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that I could have a lot to gain from interactions with them, so I just send them an email. Uh, obviously, some of them don't reply. I have plenty that have not replied, and I just yeah. have them written down in a list of people I should maybe not bother again because they probably either don't t- check their inbox or are just not interested in collaborating with me in that way, but plenty have replied, and I have gotten so much out of cold emailing. Uh, I just, I sometimes just get scared about thinking, what if I hadn't sent this email? What if I had gotten mm-hmm. a sudden rush of imposter syndrome and I just had missed this completely awesome opportunity that I now know I benefited so much from? So, right. I definitely, if I could tell my past self when I was starting my nonprofit one thing, it would just be to reach out. Uh, people are so welcoming and a lot of the time they will respond and they will be super willing and welcoming and mm-hmm. they will want to help you. So, I wish I would have reached out a little bit more. So now I'm trying to be conscious and thinking, will my future self regret not reaching out to this person? So I definitely write a lot more cold emails now.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. What's your cold email guide? What advice would you have to anyone listening who's looking to cold email someone but
1: is really intimidated? Honestly, I would say don't overthink it. Like don't look in, don't start Googling cold emailing guides. I know I always did that and I would like start overthinking Mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe I should have said this differently. Uh, Just put your true self forward, which I know is super difficult in written responses. I was applying for programs that could only have me have written responses with no resume, no cover letter. I just Mm -hmm. had to answer their kind of interview questions in a written way while letting my personality shine through, which is so difficult because it's hard to express yourself in a written way and show your uh, mannerisms in your personality with just words on a piece of paper. Uh, right. So I would say just say what you want to what you want the other person to receive. Say it like you would say it in your head. Um, I mean, make it formal, but don't stress yourself out with using words that are too big or too complicated. Uh, I, I think I got the most success when I was just really writing what I wanted to say and not listening to the templates or the rules for that. I just said, here's who I am. Here's what I want you to do for me. Can we make it happen?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to be as direct as possible because, you know, I'm sure these people that you're planning on reaching out to are really busy and having a succinct email uh, that really gets to the point but, you know, shows your passion can be infinitely um, uh, beneficial to you, any initiative that you're planning on starting and, um, just to gain knowledge in general.
1: For sure. I think when you start l- using those templates and getting caught up in those articles that people write about how to write the perfect cold email with the biggest chances of someone responding, you kind of lose a lot of your own voice that you would have portrayed if you had just written the way that you write. Uh, it also it also lets your personality shine through, which can save you a lot of hassle later because there's some people who you just will not have a good time collaborating with just based on the fact that you learn uh, and how they learn, and maybe it's not compatible or you guys just just can't work together. So if you put up a false persona in an email, uh, that might lead to problems down the road. Whereas if you just show yourself and your interests and your passions right away, uh, if that person responds, they will know who who you are and who they're working with. It It can save you a lot of trouble down the road.
0: 100%. You know, we were talking about imposter syndrome a few minutes ago. What is imposter syndrome and how has it affected you?
1: Imposter syndrome is something that everyone gets. It's when you think that you're not qualified for something or you think that you don't belong in an environment or a field of study, even though you're perfectly capable of it. And again, everyone experiences it, no matter who they are. It's, it doesn't discriminate based on age, race, gender, anything. Uh, and that definitely is such a true feeling to have when you're a teen leading an initiative like this, especially a teen working with adults. It can feel like these people are actual pilots. They're in they're in the Air Force, or they're working for Boeing, or they're working for these huge corporations based on aerospace. They're so knowledgeable. Like, what am I doing here? Uh, I'm literally a high school student. So that's a very real feeling to have, and I think one of the best ways to overcome it is to just mm-hmm. keep going, just to push through it and uh, recognize that you do belong here. You can do this. And the fact that you've made it this far is proof of that. So you wouldn't be here if you didn't belong here. Just trust that everything happens for a reason. You're supposed to be here and your voice has to be heard.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing about imposter syndrome, I think, is that your idol has imposter syndrome, experiences it all the time. And it's not an issue that is limited to you or the people around you, whatever it may be. It's even those most famous people who are incredibly successful who experience imposter syndrome and may um, at times kind of prevent themselves from reaching out and taking opportunities that they think they aren't qualified for.
1: Definitely. I think that can really help when you're in the presence of someone that's so incredible and you're like, wow, I shouldn't be here. Who, Who am I even to talk to this person? It can be really helpful to step back and say, they have felt like that, too, at countless times in their lives. Probably today, even. They've had a moment where they've doubted themselves. So everyone everyone goes through that. Everyone has to overcome it. And mm-hmm. I, I try to not give it too much thought. As soon as I catch myself slipping into that mindset of, what am I doing? I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. I try to immediately snap out of it and think, no, we're just we're just going to take this one minute at a time. One sentence at a time, we're going to push through this uh, meeting or webinar or conference, whatever I'm at at the moment, uh, usually when I'm talking to high profile people. uh, And I just Mm. go through and at the end, I recognize I did good. I belong here. um, But I think it just comes with time. And the longer you've been in it, the more you feel like you belong.
0: 100%. Yeah. So what was the biggest challenge you faced when starting Girls in Aerospace?
1: I think that the biggest challenge had to be differentiating, differentiating myself, excuse me, um, because there's so many people that do this and there's so many teens that make their own nonprofits and that start their own mm-hmm. business or things like that. And people often assume that you're doing it for the college apps, which is not a super helpful notion when you're trying to start something from a passion that you actually want to continue uh, into however long you can. So I think that the biggest challenge was making people believe that I wasn't just doing this, A, for the college apps, and B, that I was actually passionate about this and that I would stay in this for the long run. I was going to put hours a week into this. Uh, So definitely differentiating yourself from the thousands of other Instagram pages and websites and all that is the most difficult
0: Mm -hmm. part. No, I do agree with you. I think what's incredibly special is that those who are most passionate oftentimes, and almost all the time, speak from experience. And, you know, I started She the Change because of my experience as a a woman of color and feeling like that gender gap is exacerbated in everything I do. And for you, you know, girls in aerospace, as a woman in the aerospace community where that is not the norm, I think it's really special that we are changing the narrative today and making sure that girls in the future aren't Experiencing what we've experienced and changing that reality for them, so that they are more encouraged and feel safe and welcome and inclusive in a space in a world where that is far from the reality.
1: Definitely, and I think that I've been I've been very privileged to even get the chances to pursue aerospace in the way that I have. I mean, I, I flew a plane when I was I think fourteen years old, and that is yeah. not that's not a true reality. Uh, a lot of people don't get to experience that. Planes are expensive. Gas is expensive for planes. Uh, flying, airports, everything like that is super, super expensive. So coming from a place where I was able to go forth with that and I had programs uh, to make that accessible to me is uh, a very privileged stance that I was taking. And uh, mm-hmm. I understand that as a, as a woman in aerospace, I am already at a huge um Gender minority. I mean, in the professional workforce, it's six to seven percent of women are pilots, which is hugely a tiny amount. Wow. Um, hugely disproportionate Mm -hmm. to the amount of men who are pilots, and that gets even bigger when you consider the race and uh, the lifestyle of people. I mean, less than 150 black women in the United States hold a pilot's license. You could fit them all in one room, and that's military, civilian, everything. So the the numbers are tiny, and I recognize that. I am coming from a place of huge privilege to even be able to get a platform like this to advocate for that. So I think it's it's nice for me to be able to share that and share a little bit of the privilege I've been given to even start this with people who have not been so fortunate. And I think that gets down to the core mission statement of what Girls in Our Space is all about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just hearing that statistic that there are less than 150 Black women is it, shocking. But then again, I'm not surprised.
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, we're doing everything that we can to create that change. And I really, truly believe that you are changing that reality. There are going to be more women in the aerospace community because of you. And I'm so happy to be speaking with you today, a pioneer of that initiative.
1: <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, I think it all really boils down to role models. And so it, it, it really does not take a lot. It's just someone seeing themselves in aerospace which kind of segues into one of the most frustrating comments I've received. Uh, This is a million times worse than any of the actual discouragement that I've had, is people telling me, well, maybe women just don't want to go into aerospace. Like, maybe they just don't like it. And I'm like, Mm. no, you're so close to getting the point. You're so close. Uh, Because if women don't want to go into aerospace... Uh, it's, it might be because they're not seeing themselves in it. And it is because they're not seeing themselves in it. I mean, if you go your whole childhood without ever seeing a woman pilot or a woman astronaut or a woman astrophysicist or engineer, it's natural that you won't feel attracted to those fields because it doesn't seem realistic. So they're so close to getting mm-hmm. the point in that women are not seeing themselves in aerospace positions, which is the reason that the gap is much larger than other traditionally male-dominated professions like doctors or lawyers and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just going back to like your backstory, you know, if that event where um, you were accidentally introduced to the aerospace community wouldn't have happened, it's probably unlikely that you would have found the aerospace um,
1: Definitely. Uh,
0: field naturally because there are so few resources out there, especially for women. Providing those resources, that education is the first step. And I think it's really important that we have that um, accessible to everyone.
1: I think you summed that up really well is that I I recognized that I had been given a huge chance this like completely random privilege that I that had been thrown on me with mm. just like being with someone who was already in that community. Um, but other people don't get that chance every day. You know, if my mom hadn't been late picking up my sister from school, I wouldn't have even gotten that chance. So recognizing, like, I feel like this has been thrown upon me by completely random chance, uh, that, that really made me feel like I had to share it, uh, increase the odds for other people to get exposed to that. And it's not going to happen in a day or a year or even multiple years. I think it's going to hopefully happen throughout the course of my lifetime where the gender gap slowly starts to close in aerospace. But I think it's going to take several decades before we see true um, equality and equity in aerospace.
0: Mm -hmm. So for our listeners who are currently listening to this episode, what can they do within their communities to bring about tangible change within the aerospace um, community and bring about equality and, in the gender gap.
1: I think that supporting organizations that advocate for it is a great way to do that. Girls in Aerospace is far from the only one. There's there's several others. Uh, some of the great ones are Fly for the Culture and Sisters of the Skies, which I would recommend checking out. Uh, supporting them is a really great way, a really easy way too. All it takes is a follow and a like and a shout out. Um, marketing through social media is a really big way that we reach people, especially in quarantine times. So supporting aerospace nonprofits, I would say, is the number one way that you can make a difference in that. And additionally, just being a of the change and correcting just small gender equity issues that you see in your everyday life like people using only he him pronouns when talking about pilots or only he him pronouns talking about engineers i mean it's the very very small tiny things that really do make an environment not very inclusive
0: yeah that's really interesting that you touch on that i was reading an article the other day about how translator um, applications um, sometimes when you enter like I want to be a pilot, and you reverse-translate it back to to a different language and back to the original language. It'll somehow, just based on the AI, how the AI works, will um, assume pronouns. And generally, because of the AI and the the programming behind it, it will assume pronouns based on stereotypes. And I think that's like another thing that's really interesting. How that's you know something that we don't generally notice in our daily lives, but after reflecting back on the technology I've used, it's its everywhere. And um, it's really about bringing light to them because they can be changed. Um, it's just a matter of uh, introducing the problem and there's always a solution.
1: Definitely. I mean, even the fact that when we say pilot, that often defaults to male in people's eyes. And whenever they're talking mm-hmm. about a... A pilot who's a woman, they feel the need to clarify she's a female pilot, she's a female doctor, she's a female lawyer. Mm. When why why is it always the default is male? And uh, I think that those small things really perpetuate a lack of change in the gender gap, and you know it 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 won't close if we continue to accept the status quo and these stereotypes that have been going for ages uh, about who can be in those fields and what box you have to fit in in order to be successful in an aerospace or STEM field.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So what role has technology played in your activism and how has that shaped not only your organization, but your cause in general?
1: Oh, it's played a huge role. I'm sure you can relate to this as someone who leads an initiative through the this whole virtual revolution that we're going through and we've been going through for the past year or so. Uh, I mean, without technology, I wouldn't be able to do really anything with Girls in Aerospace, uh, especially mm-hmm. webinars and conferences. Technology has made me be able to call into someone who lives thousands of miles away from me and have them teach a class live or teach a webinar live. So technology Mm -hmm. has definitely had a huge impact on me. And on me personally, technology has also had a huge impact. I I love cybersecurity and I took part in a cybersecurity competition called the Air Force Association Cyber Patriot Competition last year. um, My team won in Washington State and we actually made it to the highest uh, final level that we we thought we would make it to. We made it to Platinum Division, is what it's called. So that was my first year doing cybersecurity, and I was super proud of that. And that's when I discovered the kind of diversity in aerospace because cybersecurity is hugely related to aerospace fields. Um, all the onboard computers of a spacecraft, those could be hacked. I mean, they're computers. So, how do we make mm-hmm. sure that our spacecraft that's thousands of miles in the air doesn't get hacked by someone with malicious intent who can cause a huge uh, disaster to happen? So I think that technology has played an impact on my organization by, I mean, making it functional, making me be able to reach other people, but also on in myself and in, uh, making me realize that aerospace is not just being a pilot or being an astronaut. There's so much more to it. And cybersecurity is just one example of how can we make aerospace inclusive?
0: Mm-hmm. No, I completely relate uh, to your point. Um, I think social media is so powerful. And I think we oftentimes forget that at the click of our um follow button or opening up our phone, you can be like, transported to different countries and meet hundreds of thousands of people. And it's honestly incredible to connect with these amazing people and um, hear about their experiences and relate to them. And I, I completely agree. like without social media, without marketing, without um, technology, uh, change isn't possible because you can't reach people at the extent that social media does.
1: Definitely. And it can be both a blessing and a curse again, like, like all good things here. Uh, it does let you reach a lot of people, which also means that you're, you're inevitably going to reach people who don't like that you're doing what you're doing for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for, for every overwhelming positive response that I've gotten, there's been one or two negative comments that I get. My favorites are the ones that are always like the emails with no subjects sent from some sort of anonymous email who are like, why are you doing this? This is so stupid. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, a lot of people ask me how I deal with that. And I I mean, honestly, I I don't really. There's so little of them that I just don't give any attention to them. There's no reason to stress about and no subject email that just pops into my inbox after I publish a newspaper or send out a campaign email. Um, It's it's more funny than it is uh, offensive to me just because it's it seems so pathetic to me that someone is hating on a cause like equity in aerospace for women. And I think it on one side it's kind of, it's funny and it's embarrassing for them from my side. But on the other hand, it kind of highlights for me that I do need to keep going because if people don't mm-hmm. like the fact that women are being let into aerospace, there's obviously still a problem. Uh, and it kind of motivates me to keep going in that way.
0: Yeah. I think it's really uh, opened my eyes. Social media has opened up my eyes to, people's perspectives and for the good and the bad, like you said. But I completely agree. Equity shouldn't be politicized. And, and um, I love what you're doing. Keep up the great work. It's kind of funny. I think the fact that it's sent from a anonymous email in the first place just.
1: Yeah, it kind of just underlines everything. It, right. it shows that people are willing to still be, you know, still be racist or still be sexist if they take down that mask of knowing who you are. And that that underlines the cause of we need to advocate for equity within between genders, between races, between upbringings, Uh, not only to have diversity of things like race and gender, but also to have diversity of thought of different upbringings of experiences that shaped you. Uh, We need to keep advocating for that, because if people are still willing to hate on it behind the scenes, then it's just like as if they were hating on it openly. Um, I I take it as if someone was like yelling at me on the street to the same things that they're emailing me. Um, if they were yelling at me on the street, I would obviously want to. I would be angry. I would want to make a change. So I try to use that as kind of a passionate fuel for me to recognize this is a huge issue. If people are saying this behind the scenes, they would say it to someone in person.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, you were touching on uh, cybersecurity earlier. How did you get into cybersecurity and? Um, is that something that you're also passionate about? How did you get into coding? I'd love to hear about it.
1: Uh, yes, it's something that I'm hugely passionate about. I'm, I'm struggling choosing if I want to go into an aerospace field or a cyber field, and I'm kind of realizing I can, I can do both. I can do cybersecurity within aerospace. Uh, again, I kind of got into it by accident, like most things. Uh, my dad is a software engineer, and he's very good with computers and cybersecurity and uh, setting up VPNs and things like that. So he, we just started with, with small things. He kind of introduced me to Linux Ubuntu, and it's it's a very cybersecurity related operating system. There's it's hugely customizable, uh, mm-hmm. and my squadron started doing Cyber Patriot. So I kind of got thrown into it like two days before we were supposed to start our first meeting. I threw together some sort of curriculum. I honestly had no idea what I was doing. I was learning as I was teaching the (laughs) classes. But uh, somewhere along the first or second class, we actually started doing things with the command line and, you know, the, the black black background screen with the green text it kind of looks like you're a hacker from a movie and the fact that that was a real thing and I was doing I was writing real code in the command line that was accomplishing something as awesome as making my computer safer or like I was able to find on a Windows uh, CLI, I was able to find the history of every single flash drive I'd put in my laptop and the manufacturer. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. So seeing real uh, results that I was getting from cybersecurity and also just looking like a hacker, which is always a plus, uh, that's what kind of got me into cyber. And winning the CyberPatriot competition kind of defeated some imposter syndrome there with cybersecurity. So definitely something that I really like doing.
0: Definitely. Yeah, that's incredible. I am not currently uh, into cybersecurity. I'm definitely open to trying it, um, but that's incredible. That's also a male-dominated field.
1: Definitely. STEM in general, I mean, it's it's all slowly closing. I hope that within our lifetime, we can finally say that it's becoming equal in STEM, but not quite there yeah. yet.
0: No, I definitely can relate. I'm into... Uh, And I've been working on some machine learning AI projects. So, you know, still in that coding realm. And I definitely can relate. I think it's interesting how you won this competition. What was it like? You know, I'm guessing that there were many male competitors. What was that winning experience like?
1: So, uh, we, we didn't win, you know, the whole thing we didn't win nationally, but we did get the highest score in Washington state and we did make it to that platinum round. So it was a complete win for us as a first year team. Yes. Um, and um, I made my team, well, I didn't, I didn't, you know, make my team. I didn't pick and choose who I wanted to be on it, but the people who reached out to me and the team I ended up competing with, uh, was actually very, very equal in terms of gender. It was 50, 50. So that mm-hmm. was awesome for me to compete on a team that had representation from both, um, both people of, you know, young age and experienced people and young rank and high rank and all kinds of experiences, you know, no cybersecurity experience to people who knew about it more than I did. And it was Mm -hmm. a six person team and we somehow had so much diversity within that team. Uh, So the winning experience felt, it felt awesome to know that I had been thrown into this program you know, two days before and I had somehow took a team from ground zero and we didn't know each other and only two of us had ever done anything in cybersecurity before to suddenly mm. getting the highest score in the entire state and competing on a national level. So that was a really awesome feeling to have and having both that uh, diversity and the diversity of you know race and ethnicity and gender and also diversity of thought. Uh, having both of those mm. was a super valuable asset for us.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think it's really special to have um, people of all backgrounds, people of all ages, um, identities, because they all bring different ideas to the table. And I think when you combine your ideas and really gain everyone's perspective, that's when you make um, the biggest impact and um, come up with the best ideas.
1: Definitely. And I took part in a panel a few days ago, actually, for a hackathon called called Code Hers, excuse me. Mm. And uh, it was awesome because I was actually the youngest in the panel. Uh, so it kind of was weird to speak alongside people who were so much older than me, but it was also super inspiring because they were able to bring a completely different perspective to the table. And we kind of went full circle in discovering that even within this own panel, we had so much diversity of thought. And that's where I first started using that term um, that I had been thinking about for so long, where diversity isn't just about ethnicity and gender and race and identity it's about so much more than that and it's about the specific experiences that you've gone through in life and the learning style that you have and how you how you perceive other people how you perceive yourself that is so valuable and a lot of the time that can be divided uh into things like ethnicity just because of the cultural background that you were raised in there's going to be similar uh similar experiences that you have if you were raised in poland versus if you were raised in seattle but having diversity of thought and having multiple people with Uh, different experiences is super, super valuable on any team.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned that you're in the process of creating an iOS app. What is that like? What is your um, app called? And uh, tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. So hopefully I'll be launching my app sometime soon. Honestly, who knows? It's It's been crazy. And with self-led projects, it's um, the timeline is just super fluid. But my app is called LTEasy. Uh, that's the name right now. On the App Store, who knows what the name will be. If, if I watch this in a year or so, maybe I'll be looking back and just have completely renamed and redesigned it. But the app is called LTEasy, and it's a data-saving app. So it knows your home and work locations and all of that, or your school, pretty much anywhere where your Wi-Fi is supposed to connect automatically and it um, it will let you know if you've been in that place for more than 10 minutes and you're not connected to Wi-Fi so you don't end up using up all your mobile data if you don't get that automatic connection
0: I love that That's definitely an issue I've faced sometimes I find myself like assuming that it connects to the Wi-Fi and I've been using cellular for hours not the best situation to be in um, yeah so I, I love that, there's a solution that, that. exactly Yeah, Yeah,
1: I came home and it just didn't connect. And I had been scrolling for hours and I have limited data. So I have like, you know, two gigs. And after that, it'll go to like snail speeds where it takes, you know, two minutes to load google.com. So that inspired me to think, um, I know how to code. I know how to make iOS apps. How can I solve this?
0: Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that the uh, language, the coding language used for cybersecurity is different from that of iOS app development. So how did you learn those two different languages and what was that experience like?
1: So the language that I use for cybersecurity mostly is not actually a programming language as much as it is a command line interface. So it's it's the, okay. the they differ based on Windows and Linux and all of that. The Linux systems are really cool in the fact that they're all Linux systems. They all have the same uh, command prompts. So you you use the same keywords and all of that. Windows is different. No one likes Windows command prompt. Um, I honestly never learned that. I still have to Google the keywords and what I'm supposed to use uh, because, you know, as Windows, anyone in cybersecurity will tell you that um, they prefer the Ubuntu command line over Windows any day. But the transition from iOS development and um, the, the programming languages that I consider myself proficient in are mostly Java and HTML, CSS, JS. And obviously those are super different from something like a yeah. command line prompt where you're searching the logs of your computer. Uh, honestly, it wasn't a too difficult transition, just because computers all kind of function and think in the same way. So once you learn one coding language, the transition from uh, the the transition from that one to the next is not super difficult. Uh, I did struggle with it a little bit, just because the keywords are hard to remember and they differ from interface to interface. But uh, mm-hmm. I definitely am grateful that I went into coding before I went into cybersecurity because it laid really good foundations for me in terms of CompSci.
0: Yeah, uh, I definitely can relate. I am also, um, pretty, uh, decent. I would say at JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and on the machine learning AI front, um, it's more like databases. So SQL, that's what it's called and Python. So I definitely can relate to you. They're similar, but they're also very different. Um, it's an interesting shift. I'll sometimes get them mixed up and start typing in a different language.
1: Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I'll just put yeah. semicolons at the end of statements that don't even have semicolons in the entire programming language. And I'm like, what is wrong with my code? It seems completely correct. And I realize I've completely morphed like HTML and CSS into one language. And
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I definitely can relate to that issue. Sometimes the entire code is not working because of one semicolon and you're out there like scrolling through all of your code trying to find the issue and oh my gosh such a sigh of relief but also like oh my gosh I could have fixed that issue like hours ago (laughs) um so what advice do you have for listeners who may be unsure or scared of speaking up and want to use their voice for good
1: that's a really tough one because I think it depends so much on the person and uh, who you are and what what already comes easy to you. So like for me, public speaking, I, I didn't really struggle with public speaking about aerospace because I was so passionate about it. So my my number one advice would be to reach out to other people, to cold email, to uh, make that phone call, to write that LinkedIn message, because other people can be hugely helpful to your cause and helpful to your mission. Having that support system, even of strangers, but professionals, uh, or or of people who have done the same thing as you before, That can be very, Mm -hmm. very empowering and it can make the process a lot easier. But also just just to believe in yourself, just do it. Uh, Think of yourself a year from now and think of how grateful you'll be for starting. Uh, I'm I'm super grateful to me a year ago for making that first step and making that Instagram page and that website because I wouldn't be Mm -hmm. here if it wasn't for that. So recognize how much it can shape your future and think of that in a positive way. Reach out for help. And I mean, you got this.
0: I love that. All right. So to end off our episode, what gives you hope for a better future in bridging the gender gap in the aerospace field?
1: I think it's the fact that I I am sitting here um I've on a podcast talking about this, which which shows that I have gotten some level of success and I've gotten some level of approval from the aerospace community in such a short time that I've been doing this and in such a young age um that I even started this initiative. So Uh, the support that I've gotten, Mm -hmm. I think gives me the most hope. And I think it should also empower everyone else who's listening to this, that you can start this cause. Uh, You can start this initiative. You can start uh, advocating for what you believe in. People will be supportive of you and they will understand what you're trying to say. So just go for it. Just do it. I I believe in everyone who is trying to start their own initiative, especially after doing this. It gives me so much hope to recognize that people resonate with what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think If we have a voice and we have a cause and if if it's truly something that we're passionate about, there's no uh, point in preventing yourself from pushing through and um, using your voice because the causes are so important, recognizing that there are issues out there and trying to be that change Um, because, you know, you're not just one person. It's really important to recognize that sometimes it may feel like you're attacking this like huge issue that one person can't attack entirely and break down the entire system and solve. But it's really like a chain reaction. Your influence influences more people who influence their friends and their friends. And it's just like a a ripple effect. And I think it's really important to recognize that that is what initiates change.
1: For sure. I think that's a really good ending statement uh, is to Say that as as a woman in STEM, or even just as a person who exists and who lives life, uh, you're not just talking for yourself. You're talking for everyone who looks like you, who has similar experiences to you. You're kind of you're representing mm-hmm. them in the eyes of other people. So you don't have to be intimidated about marketing yourself to others. You're marketing your cause. You're marketing what you believe in. You're marketing your values, uh, and that can be a really empowering thing to show your passion, make those values visible, uh, because you are sharing them just by talking to people and just by interacting on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. All right, so that just about wraps of our podcast session for today. If you guys want to reach out to Carolina, feel free to set up a coffee chat with her on her LinkedIn and all of her Instagram details will also be linked in the bio. Um, thank you so much, Carolina, for joining me today. It was awesome having a conversation with you and I really gained a lot of insight and um, I hope that all of our listeners do as well. Thank you so much
1: for having me. Thank you
0: to our listeners for listening to today's podcast. Make sure to follow SheTheChange on Instagram at SheTheChangePod.